Welcome to Tech Talks, the technology podcast with David Savage and Jack Pierce, publishing on Mondays and Thursdays. This is the show packed full of interviews and debate with technology leaders for the love of tech. On today's podcast, we are joined by David. He is the head of analytics, insight, and data uh, for global experiences at Booking.com. It was a mouthful, eh? Yeah. <laughs> but before that, hi, Jack. Hello. Good afternoon. So there is a fissure. There is a a moment where the force is crying out as one. I don't know. I mean, look, I'm on board with wherever this conversation is going, but I don't know where it's going. You're leaving. Ah, yeah. Not the podcast. Never. No, not the podcast. I have a a new role to go to, yes. Um, Listeners, I'm sure you are probably familiar, but as we've said before, myself and Jack have been colleagues for a number of years. We work at the same company, Harvey Nash, and Jack's leaving. Yeah, yeah. But he loves the pod so much, don't worry, he's staying on the pod. Yeah, he loves the pod so much that... He's done it for free for 18 months now and he's going to continue to do it for free in the foreseeable future. I love though that people in the office came up to me and went, what's going to happen? Because, you know, Jack's not going to get paid for it now. And I'm sure. like, he's a bit writer. He doesn't yeah. get paid for it this now. my job. Like, it's lucky. It's good that my current boss and your boss let me do it anyway. <laughs> you know, I have a full-time job to do. Not all of us are lucky like Dave in that, all right, we may have worked 10 years as a recruitment consultant, but we don't just get to then have a podcast as our job, you see. And <laughs> listeners, as you know, I'm a lot, lot, lot younger than Dave, so maybe, maybe I'll get to your stage soon. But yes, we're not leaving the podcast, of course I'm not. Um, but yeah, just going to a, to a big software company. I think it's, it's exciting. We, we might have to put some more thought into things. Yeah, we're going to actually have to be like, rather than like you walking past my desk and be like, do you want to record in half an hour? Like, yeah, all right, yeah. We might have to, yeah, actually put some something in place. But, you know, we've got to, we've got this far without any organisation, so... I th- Maybe we could do with some like data and some insight into what time of day terrible. previously are... No, terrible, terrible. <laughs> Absolutely awful. Oh, God, you, you try better. Oh, I know, I know. Booking.com. Uh, we, could, we, could, we could find somewhere to record. Yes? Yeah. Well, rewind, Dave. They won't hear this, but edit this out. <laughs> um, on today's show, as we said, we've got David. Uh, he is from Booking.com. We're What's David's be- surname, Dave? I just want to hear you struggle over the pronunciation. Severin. Severin? I can't. I've got no idea, but I noticed that the, you you didn't purposefully say his surname. So yeah. yeah, because I... Yeah. It's Italian. I'm a cretin. I'm not very good with names, generally. <laughs> it's Italian. You're a Geordie. Let's call the whole thing off. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but he is, he is a friend of the show. This is his second appearance, Jack. He was, uh, he was on the show when he was at eBay. He was one of, I think, possibly our first 20, 25 guests. Right, so friend of the show, yet you couldn't be bothered to read his book. I didn't know he published it to be perfectly fair, but thanks. Anyway, with that, let's go to his interview. Pretty good friend of the show. No, I didn't bother reading your book, mate. So today we're we're chatting to David. You are the head of analytics, insights, and data for Booking.com. You're also an author. Yes. Um, well, August was it August last year? Yes. How, uh, Office of Cards. Yes. Was published. Yes. After one year and a half of uh, writing. Yeah. On August twenty seventh, twenty eighteen, the book was available on Amazon. Look, Office of Cards, I assume, is is purposefully meant to make you think of House of Cards. Yes. 
it's one of the layers in the title. Yeah. Uh, essentially, the meaning of that is, uh, well, first of all, we're talking about office. We're talking about uh, large corporations. Yeah. We're talking about how to succeed in large corporations. And so and we do that by explaining some of the dynamics that are typical of large corporations, especially in uh, human relationships mm -hmm. and in self-awareness and in how to tweak your behaviors so that you can win and your talent can actually thrive in a large organization. I believe there is a lot of literature that talks about uh, if you are unhappy in a large organization, you should be your own boss, you should go build a startup or whatever. The models that we idolize, the Elon Musk's, uh, the Mark Zuckerberg's, whatever, they all did that. Yeah. And I'm advocating that uh, one in two of the working population is working for a company that is bigger than 250 people. Yeah. So you should know how to deal with that kind of situation. Well, I have to confess, I haven't read the book. Does it deal with analytics? Not at all. Because I, I was just thinking, it, it's interesting listening to you talk about culture and the human aspect of things. We were talking to a company called Domo on the podcast not too long ago, and they were using data to try and validate someone's gut feeling. So I kind of wondered if there might be aspects of that that you attempted to put into the book. There's a lot of going on in the realm of the sentiment analysis, social media monitoring and all that, language recognition in order to understand the feelings of, of a population. That's why actually Facebook is available with a corporate product called Workplace. Yep. They essentially allow you to chat and then they monitor you know, the feeling and so on. Um, I didn't take that angle, I could have, but I wanted to make the book as accessible and applicable as possible. Mm. The subtitle of the book says uh, it's a practical guide to success and happiness in large organizations and life, which means it's literally for everyone. Now, having success in a large organization often is kind of determined by having an understanding about what your role is, how you fit in, what your purpose is. And yet you work in an industry where there's not actually a huge, huge amount of a, a, a commonality between exactly what a CDO or a head of data or a head of analytics might actually do for an organization, right? Yes, that's actually a conversation that I find myself in uh, oftentimes when I, when I go for an interview, right? Uh, when they interview me, they say, oh, we're looking for a chief data officer. And I said, okay, cool. Um, what, uh, what should this person do? And not one time I got the same answer, right? So even companies that are looking for these people, they tend to look for them because of uh, an article they read, because of a conference they went to, because of some, because their competitor is having that person and so they want to have the same. But they don't really know what kind of remit they would have. Uh, Based on you know several people that I know that have the job, it could have a flavor around data governance. So banks, for example, have to have that kind of figure for data architecture, data governance, compliance, and stuff like that. But the the, the angle that is uh, picking up right now is the angle where the the data person is not is not just owning the data and putting their signature on on the validity of the data and so on, but it's also about using the data and it's about connecting the usage of the data to the company mission, to the company operations, uh, to finance, to marketing, uh, measuring the ROI of investments, being responsible for saying that we, if we spend a dollar, we make two in an objective way, in a way that is totally unbiased. Because if you, if you ask the marketing, the CMO, if the marketing that they are doing is ROI positive, he will always say yes. But you need the third party that can essentially be objective and say, well, 
how are we measuring that? Mm. Okay, maybe, you know, we are not so positive if we measure things in a certain way. So there is a lot of uh, subjectivity. There is a, a motto, like a, a joke that goes around in my industry, which is if you torture data long enough, it will tell you what you want. So the point is you need objectivity when you look at the data. And so that's why I'm a strong advocate of putting the, a, a person responsible for data, reporting to the CEO, and even in the board, if possible. That's, that's an interesting point to jump in, because you mentioned there about the fact that that conversation might start because a competitor is investing in this area. And that can be quite dangerous, surely, doing something as a, as a reaction to something else. Because if, if you then start a project without thinking clearly about why we're we doing this and how it's positioned within the organization, surely that could set yourself up for a, for a big fail. Yes, because the, the problem of data is that when you start doing data, it's a cost with no revenue. And so if you start looking at this without a clear vision of why you're doing it and what are you going to get out of it and what are the changes that you need to apply to the company culture to move away from gut-based decision-making and move towards data-based decision-making. And by the way, not everyone is going to be happy about it. Spoiler alert. Uh, then what you end up having is a situation in which you hire someone super senior who has been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and is trying to help you shape a strategy. The strategy is going to take time to pan out. It's going to require further investment on technology, on people, and so on. And if after one year or two you don't see the results, then you say, okay, data is useless, right? Which is why I say it's important to have a data person also in the board so that that the board can be brought on board in the vision, in the long-term impact that this change is going to make and can also, from within the board, help the person in charge of the execution of the data strategy get it done and get things across to people that might be resistant. Because again, the CMO example that I was making before, the CMO is not going to be happy, right? As a, as a person, it's going to be happy for the company, yes. But if you start saying that my marketing is no longer ROI positive, all of a sudden, I have a problem with that. And that's why you need, you need unity. And to get unity, you also need someone above the CEO that can help the CEO push the point. Because otherwise what's going to happen, and I've seen it in real life, is that the CEO is going to defend his decision of hiring a chief data officer for a year, for as long as they can. Yeah. But then as they cannot deliver and they cannot fully understand the benefits, they will have a harder time as time goes by in selling the point to the board. And every one of these C-level are going to kind of say, this doesn't make any sense, we shouldn't do it. And, and therefore, the whole plan is going to be rejected. So if a CEO was listening to this podcast, and it might be difficult, because obviously every organization is different, their data is going to be in a different state and they're of a different size but typically how long is it a cost surely the question is when am i going to see return on investment well it depends on the starting point the reality because uh, i mean some companies are ready to go some companies are far away it depends uh, and that's why i think it's uh, quite important to define a remit. so not say i had a cdo and that's it and then we do data yeah. <laughs> the second the guy starts we are doing data no I think that, uh, uh, and again, I found myself in several of these uh, uh, conversations during interviews saying, okay, if I was to take the job, this is the one thing that I would do. And then depending on the company, it could be, I'm gonna look into customer support costs. I'm gonna look into customer acquisition costs. I'm gonna look into the profit making. I'm gonna look into the value chain that you're building. And so I define a remit that essentially means it's gonna take me a lot less money and a lot less uh, internal support to prove the value of data. 
and from that success I build the following project and so on and so forth so so it's very important to frame if you want to frame a person in charge of data for success within the company it's very important to look at the biggest problem you have the one where you will not find internal resistance because there is awareness that there is a big problem there so everyone is up for any solution that would be possibly you know good to, to resolve the situation and on that success build further projects which is why it's very dangerous when you hire a chief data officer because the competitor did it and not because you have a problem because then the chief data officer doesn't really have anything specific to do they start doing random things they don't exactly work they make a lot of enemies and then you have the rejection that we were talking about before what what does good look like because you wrote a blog post where you said you know the person needs to have profile they need to have experience of large analytics machines at scale i i I've spoken to a lot of people, and I would I would have no idea to, to, to be able to kind of contextualize what large, successful analytics machines look like at scale. So I suppose defining that and what good looks like is, is part of the challenge as well, right? Yes. So there is a way uh, of defining what big data is that I believe also answers the question about what success looks like. This way is called the three V's mm. of big data. One is velocity, one is variety, and one is volume, right? So volume, the bigger, the more gigabytes, terabytes, petabytes, it's growing over time. It's now talking about gigabytes is become what talking about megabytes 10 years ago was. And so we are having size, we are having volume. Then we have velocity. Velocity means how fast it is for me to get access to the data that I want. A few years ago, it was very slow, you know, data pooling, data processing, it wasn't, it wasn't fast. Today, it's real time. So today, when you click on a button, there, there are a lot of computations going on that decide what you're going to see next, mm. right? Uh, and, and what you are going to see next is different from what I'm going to see next. And so this is very important that we understand that if you want to operate in a big data world, you also need to understand the importance of real-time analytics that lead to things like machine learning, personalization, and so on. And then there is variety. Variety means up until 20 years ago, data was numbers, bits and bytes. Uh, today, data is pictures. It's sound. It's uh, music. It's uh, location. It's uh, uh, the weather. It's, it's a bunch of things that put together, they're like ingredients to a recipe. If you use them in the right way, they're going to lead you to an amazing dish. Yeah, yeah. And this is the same. But also, as a lot of great chefs uh, used to say, it's important, it, what, what you don't put in the dish is as important as what you put in the dish. And so it's very important that we do not get distracted by shiny objects and we focus on the things that we know have a direct correlations, correlation with, um, with the result that we want. Which leads to what I think is the fourth B, which is the answer to the question, what does success look like, which is the value. Because everything that you do, you could do everything you want with data. The point is, out of the 100 things you could do, there are probably three that make sense in your business, in your industry, that will give you the highest return for that investment in this point in time. And so the successful chief data officer, the successful data person, is a person that is not only capable of understanding how to manage the complexity of data architecture, how to build the right infrastructure, how to do real-time size, velocity that we talked about, and how to handle the complexity of variety. But I think it's a person that is also capable of asking the right questions, of understanding what the business is doing and, and understanding the implication of their analysis to the business 
and understanding how my work can make marketing better, can make supply chain better, can make uh, sales better. And for this to happen, it, it it's a requirement that I need to be able to speak the language of the person doing the job that I'm trying to help, mm. right? So uh, I've seen a lot of people that I call data nerds. They are a lot better than anyone on the technical side of things. But when you deploy them on a senior position, they have a hard time making themselves clear to someone that has been doing sales for 30 years and successfully so. Yeah. And, and therefore, it's very difficult to build trust. It's very difficult to build, a, to build a, a working relationship based on mutual support, which goes back to the previous point about defining a remit and then, you know, build on that. So the capacity of learning the soft skills, the capacity of speaking the business language to business people is actually one of the reasons why I wrote the book. As an analyst myself, I see a lot of people that are extremely talented and they cannot thrive in large organizations because they don't give the the, the, I mean, the relevance that they should to the soft skills, to the capacity of telling a story, to the capacity of framing a problem, to the capacity of asking the right question. They're more focused on, okay, give, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Mm-hmm. And they are the best in the world at that point. But there is a point at which that is no longer your job. That is no longer the success. And if you, if you talk about senior roles, a senior role is a person that has to influence people that don't have anything to do with data. So yeah, you yeah. need to be able to speak that language. Last quick question then. Um, I was talking to uh, the CEO of a company called uh, Mind Sensors Global recently, and they were talking about the fact that adoption of AI is not successful because of a couple of things. Um, one, are you starting with a business problem? The second part was around resources. Uh, and they suggested that there simply weren't the technical resources in the, in the industry at the minute to successfully implement a lot of these solutions and ideas within organizations. Do you think that that's a problem? Do you think that there are simply, I mean, we know there's a skill shortage across tech as a whole, but in this particular area, is it something that's holding us back or are there other things that are, that are stopping organizations being successful when it comes to data strategy? I think at all levels, the same problem uh, applies, which is the problem of defining what the role success is. Because when you talk about the senior role, we just spoke about it, and we now know what the problem is. But when you talk about people in data in general, you can have data analysts, you can have reporting analysts, marketing analysts, uh, finance analysts, you can have data scientists, you can have uh, machine learning experts. I mean, there's a lot. It's not like, uh, I mean, selling a car and selling a printer, it's it's selling, but it's not the same thing. Yeah. And the same applies to data. There are very different ways. When I was an analyst myself uh, 12 years ago, it was about SQL and Excel. That's it. Today, there's so much more, right? There are a lot of languages, a lot of tools. Uh, there's visualization, which has become super important. There is machine learning, there is Python, there is prediction models. There are all these things that uh, essentially are, are again like ingredients for a dish and so the point is if i if my company has a need for data people it's not data people i need to understand what kind of data i need to double click on the word and go to the page that explains what are the options of data so people are being narrow and they're thinking about what the profile of someone in the industry yes, looks like. yes which usually leads to giving the wrong pitch to the recruiting agency that they use mm. or whatever and and that's Again, the difference between a good recruiting agency and a better recruiting agency is the good one tells you you're wrong. You don't need that guy. You need this guy. And and they help you frame the job description in a way that is actually functional to solving your problem. 
identifying what are the skills that the person should have and identifying what are the things that you might be overpaying the person for, right? Um, and then making sure that you make the right hire because uh, the, our industry, the data industry, is moving so fast mm. that people cannot afford to make a bad decision in terms of uh, career choice. So if I'm a data scientist and I find myself in a job that does not require my skills, I'm going to quit so quickly because if I don't use my data science skills, in six months I'm going to be unemployable because that, that is the thing that makes me special. And, and the field is moving so fast that if I don't use them, I, I fall behind. And then there is a new thing and, and I don't know it and that becomes the new standard and then you know my, my value in the market goes down. So this is why it's very important to think about recruiting as not I need data people, but what kind of data people? Do I need a data engineer? Do I need a data architect? Do I need a data analyst? Do I need a data scientist? It begins with data, but the world after that is, an, is a different one. And so I think that going back to your question, it's super important that instead of talking about the person that you need, the talent that you need, you talk about the problem that you have with someone that can help you then transform it into a job description, right? And that could be the chief data officer that you hired, someone in the board that is savvy about these things, a person that you meet at a conference. I mean, I personally uh, work with uh, in an advisory capacity for companies exactly for that. They tell me, I want to do data. Okay, this, these are the things that you need if this is the problem that you want to solve. Are you willing to go there? Are you willing to upset uh, the marketing person, the salesperson? Oh, no, but why do we need to upset them? Let me tell you why. And then you do like a, a little bit of a simulation and say, okay, this is what I would do if I was doing a job for you. Oh, but that would upset them. Yes, exactly. That's exactly the point because we are now opening the box and look in the box to understand how to optimize. And guess what? If there is room for optimization, it means that something that you were doing today was not optimal, yeah, which yeah. people tend to take personally. So that's, that's the reason why it's very important to know where you are going and to be aware that it's a journey, it's not a quick move, uh, takes time, uh, costs, uh, but it can be definitely planned properly and the position in which you are, and, and maybe I'm going to close with this quote from Nelson Mandela, which is, um, I, never, I'm, I never lose, uh, I either win or I learn. And that applies very well to a decision based on data. If you make a decision based on data, if you're right, good. If you're wrong, you have a model of reference that will allow you not to make the same mistake again. And that is, if, if that is not power, I don't know what it's. David, look, thank you very much for your time. If someone is interested in finding out a bit more about the book and having a, having a look at it, House of, um, sorry, not House of Cards, yes. Office of Cards. Office of Cards. How would they find it? Is it, I'm assuming it's on Amazon? It's on Amazon, on Apple, everywhere you can buy a book, you can yep. find it. Cool. Well, look, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. I really like this idea or this analogy of data being the ingredients to a recipe. Oh, you know we love metaphors and this might be one of the best we've heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, like, and, and the bit about, it's not about what, just what you put in, it's what you don't put in. Yeah, exactly. Like there's, like an ele- there's an element of um, bad eggs, bad omelette about it, but, yeah. you know... <laughs> Which is one of my favourite all-time analogies. Brilliant, yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, well, exactly. I, I, he makes that point that it's almost as important about mm. what you don't put in. And it's so true, right? Because it, 
I think there was a stat when we were at Big Data World a week ago or mm. a week and a half ago. Uh, the companies don't, basically companies don't use up to 80% of their data. Yeah, that's right. Right. So if they're not using 80% of that data and all of a sudden it's like, oh, we've got to get someone in, we've got to have a look at our data, there would be that urge, I guess, to throw all of it in yeah. and go, well, what's it telling us? Into a big lake, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that could lead to a bit of a disastrous yeah. outcome where you you make a hash of it and actually that would um, mean that an organization has turned off data or any insight that it could it could get and he makes some really good points around that but yeah absolutely what what you're not putting into it is almost as important as what you do put in I think like I mean rarely on this I mean more and more as, as we do this podcast the more you know slightly closer to understanding technology I become but I felt very vindicated with what David said um, because again uh, big data world last week or the week before um, Ryder and I sat down with uh, Jude of Buil, um who is the digital data analyst uh, digital data analyst at Cineworld and we asked him you know what do you think, like there's a talent shortage, what do you think is the most important for a junior data analyst to be doing? Mm. And he said they need to keep asking why. And David said um, CDOs don't just understand data, blah, 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 but they're capable of asking the right questions, right? So the best people in data at a junior level, according to Jude from Cineworld, and at a senior level, according to David from Booking.com, two huge brands, so they're going to be right, mm. all say that you need to be asking the right questions, and that is why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? What's, yeah, it's, and it sounds so simple, but it's not. And that question's only going to come into sharper focus, right? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. David uh, mentions um, petabytes, but equally we're coming into the exabyte age. Dave, we didn't even know what petabyte was two weeks ago. No, I know, but come on, we're learning. <laughs> but we're yeah, learning, no, we're right, learning right. with the listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Exabytes, um, ba- basically, um, I think it's a thousand petabytes, and it, yeah, it's a crazy amount of data. But the, the point is that we're going to get to the stage where because of machine learning, data is creating data. Yeah, yeah. So you're going to yeah. end up in a situation with this one, <laughs> where already there's huge amounts of data, but it's just going to grow exponentially. Yeah. So asking the right question when... We've talked for a number of years now about the avalanche of data that's created. God knows how we're going to describe it in the future. But understanding what the question that you need to ask in that environment is going to be hard. Yeah, and and, and on the same point, what else is going to be hard is pissing off your chief marketing officer as well. And that no, but that really made me smile. But it is so pertinent. Like your data, data doesn't lie, right? We know that data doesn't really lie, but at the same time, David says, you know, you can talk to data, eventually it'll tell you what you want to, what you want yeah. to know. But I also think that that means you end up um, uh, sort of, not colluding with the data, but you end up wanting to see what you want to see in it rather than the data lie, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It, it can be used to... Uh, it can Disprove be used or, or prove, you know? What is the word? Yeah, I'm on the cusp of that word as well. It's a C. Well, the, no, I was thinking, oh, validate. Okay, validate, right, yeah. Okay. It could be used to validate something that you already think, but yeah. actually falsely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and if, I suppose it's that thing of, yeah, the board has to be really clear about what the what the question is that it's asking. Yeah. And then there does need to be an element of some distance and a department that's able to build and make a data machine yes. that is able to carry out that work independently, I guess, from the rest of the organisation. Otherwise, they could collude and could mm. come up with all sorts of rather damaging outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we know, again, from the, from the uh, meetup or the event last week, data isn't the new oil. It's not. It's not the new. It's snake oil. No, no it's not snake oil. It, data is the new sun. 
we learn. Data uh, is the, the new from, from the from the founder of uh, the DMA. Da- data is the no, it wasn't him. Sorry, forget who it was now. Uh, anyway, data is the new sun. Just on data is the new sun. The sun's going to burn out eventually. Data never will. What an interesting thought, Jack. You know, I love my data mantras. Right, I'm sure. Well, what? we're going to get really kind of about it. You know, it's bollocks. Okay. I suppose the other thing to consider, and it's it's not mentioned in this talk, is. What tools are people going to have to use? You know, I, I guess that there's going to be this huge explosion in engineering around this because, quite frankly, the tools that we have that are fit to, fit for purpose for the amount of data that we have today mm. are not going to be fit for purpose in five years, ten years' time. Yeah. Um, and and our strategies and methods around working with this data are equally going to have to change. So I, I just think it's a really interesting area. It's, a, it's an interesting industry. and. Mm. If you don't get someone in role now and they're not the right person and they don't have the right level of sponsorship and they go into an organization and make enemies, I, I think with everything else that's going on around organizations right now, yeah. that is a really dangerous position to be in. It's incredibly dangerous. And you know, there's a level before that where like, don't just go out and get a CDO, Chief Data Officer, Head of Data, just because you know your competitor's doing it or something mm. like that. You need to know why you want this person in post and you need to know this person's potentially going to piss some people off as well. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, that's just the, the, the in fact they thing. should yeah yeah. because why would you hire them otherwise right if they're, if you're getting someone in who's going to be on a big packet of money I'd assume right they're going to piss people off but that's what they're there to do yeah, yeah. we're not talking about getting in a management consultancy who are just going to you know tell you to start dotting your eyes a bit differently or whatever we're talking about getting someone in that's going to strategically shape the future of your business so mm-hmm. yeah I, I hope they would piss someone off and on that happy collaborative note let's go to our advert break exactly Farewell, but not goodbye. Do you know what that is? No. Bobby Robson's autobiography. All the better, read by Bobby Robson. No way. Yeah. What a legend of the game he was. Exactly. It's a great book to read, but listening to Bobby Robson, talking you through his life, that's special. Exactly. My choice is uh, The Sisters Brothers, which is a film starring Jake Gyllenhaal and John C. Riley that has been released worldwide apart from in the UK. So, I'm going to listen to the audiobook. If anyone's wondering why we've suddenly started talking about books, it's because if you head over to audible.co.uk forward slash tech talks, you can get a free month's trial there, courtesy of your favourite technology podcast. Get listening. Welcome back to Tech Talks. Who's going first? Uh, I think, well, I don't know your article, but I can see the picture and I think it makes sense if mine goes first. All right. Um, so mine's from Shard de Souza, an Australian writer for The Guardian. Uh, the headline being, it's ironic, but gaming can be an escape from our hyper-connected screen-filled life. Basically, go to The Guardian find this article, because it's brilliant. Um, and basically, Shard is saying that uh, he's grown up with computers, tablets, various other kinds of screens, and it seems unnatural to give them up just to hark back at an older generation's way of life. You know, screens are our life now. But it's about... But being connected all of the time can get frenzied. And he's recently found himself needing to take some more time out. But it's ironic that video games is his separation. So think about it like this. Your phone's always buzzing, Instagram, Facebook, Tinder, whatever. And you're going to pick it up. If you're watching Netflix, if you're watching TV, it's always going to have that um, sort of playing on your mind that you want to pick up your phone, right? If you're playing a video game, you're in this world, you're immersed in it, and your hands aren't free. Now, Shard says, he goes on to say, his favourite games that he's playing are uh, mindless games. Uh, Super Mario Odyssey, Mario Kart, and Zelda. You know, 
Zelda being an open world game where Zelda he... is not mindless. No, 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 no. Sorry, no, you're one hundred percent right. But what he says is he doesn't even play the narrative. He just goes around, hunts game, knocks around, talks to the villagers, like just lives a separate life in there, which I think is kind of pure. And the most pertinent point for me was this. Well, yeah, I'm just I, thinking. I'm just thinking. It's kind of Ready Player One esque. Well, like, no, it is. It know, is the, the missing generation. 100%. We did, we didn't go missing. You know that whole idea that they've just disappeared into a slightly better reality. <laughs> anyway, anyway, this is a bit like in the Watchdog, but spoiler alert. Um, shouldn't say spoiler alert. Arthur's Jack. Anyway, the luxury of having the world at your fingertips also comes with the downside that you always have the world at your fingertips, right? So my favourite album of 2017, sorry to harp back, where it was by an Australian fella called Alex Cameron, and it's called Forced Witness. The reason it's called Forced Witness is because we are privy to every tragedy, every piece of news, everything comes into our phones, and we don't have a choice but to look at it because it's there in front of us in our pockets. And, I mean, even five years ago, if you'd have said to me, people are looking to escape from their phones by playing more games, I'd have said, okay, well, fair enough, but surely the damage is already done, you're still looking at the screen, but... He's talking more cathartically, you know, to take himself out of this world, you know, a world so driven by social and stuff like that, and put himself into... To be, to be fair, reality I, I can relate. Yeah. I, I, from time to time, will stick my phone on airplane mode yeah. and open Football Manager Mobile. I do exactly the same thing. I'm on year 2024 with Arsenal at the moment. I'm on year... I think I'm on year 2023 20, or 20. Nice. I'm going to have to get Kylian Mbappe to sign a new contract, though. I'm gonna, you've bought Kylian Mbappe? Yeah, I bought Kylian Mbappe. Ah. Here we go. I'm just going to double check the year that I'm in. Same. <laughs> <laughs> Great podcast. And pause the podcast for a second. <laughs> have a look who I am and where we are. It's come you! And he's in fourth in the Premier League, only after seven games. So yeah, yeah. Football Manager is a great release. The only problem with Football Manager now is that I'm getting stressed out by it because my best players won't re-sign their contracts. It does get actually. It's quite sad. It gets quite frustrating. Yeah. I, I have been, I have been there at times on a train, sitting next to some poor person close to swearing. Yeah. Because I've just missed out on the playoffs or, or something. Losing a cup final on Football Manager is like. I'm sorry, I've lost grandparents, and but losing a cup final on that. I don't know. I think when you're chasing promotion and you've got players that you know, I've only got players Arsenal. So, (laughs) (laughs) mate, I'm Eddie Howe of the virtual world. Yeah, no, wait. Eddie Howe played for Bournemouth and then managed them. All right, you're just, you're just right. Okay, okay. Should we move on? Yeah, probably. (laughs) So my article is also about gaming. I just sorry. This should be our Patreon channel. Us two talking about football manager. It's also about gaming. Slightly different take, but actually at the yeah. same time similar. It might feed in, hopefully. Yeah. So this is about um, Nintendo Labo. Okay. Um, it's from Wired. It's by Will Beddingfield. Uh, Nintendo Labo VR is a brilliantly basic virtual reality experience. What I love about this is they basically have. Have given you a box, and I know I, I know that there have been previous kind of cardboard builds for mm-hmm. VR headsets, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. But not only that, they give you boxes that can be made into things like a ray gun. Oh snap! So the two controllers go into this kind of cardboard thing that you can build, and it's a gun that you point at the TV. 
Um, Listeners, uh, Dave's showing me a photo, but just know that it's no clearer to me than it is to you because it's, it's split, split across, across two, two pages. pages. <laughs> but get this right. Nintendo is attempting VR again, this time with its Labo line for Nintendo Switch. Mm-hmm. With those unfamiliar, Nintendo Labo is a build-it-yourself cardboard kit aimed at children six and up Whoa. that combines the Switch to blend physical and virtual play. On opening the box, the player is confronted with cardboard sheets, rubber bands and stickers that they must assemble into toy models um, like an elephant or a bird. These models hold the Switch Joy controllers uh, and they can be used to play mini video games des- uh, designed specifically for their construction. I think it's brilliant. I love what it, it's doing is it's taking something virtual but it's it's adding a creative element. It's getting kids to to, to, to be physical and to play with it and mm-hmm. to be a little bit... I, I, I think this is brilliant. I no, think this is absolutely brilliant. I mean, it's almost like they're going to be making their own realities with these boxes and stuff I think and excuse me let's be honest like video games are going to be here forever now like they have been for the last 30 40 years they're yep. going to remain forever so why don't rather than like my article suggested rather than trying to harp to the older generation's way of life which let's be honest means that you'll probably end up being racist and want to leave the EU and you know all that rubbish that actually in, sink yourself into video games because the world around us is fucking tragic at the moment but there's something <laughs> there's something really satisfying about building stuff as well when I was a kid I, I used to really like ethics um, stuff and I used to really like Warhammer kinetics uh, what no, they... so the ethics things were like where you built like uh, model aeroplanes yeah, and you painted yeah, yeah, them and yeah. stuff no, um... oh sorry you're just talking about something different what the fuck <laughs> was it no, it, no but it's, it's kinetics was it kinetics I'm looking at Ryan he's Anyway, like Lego, but yeah, right. no, I was the same. I used to love building stuff. As I kid. used to love Warhammer because yeah, I so buy all the models and then paint them under the microscope. Yeah. And I built a battlefield on a plywood board. Same, me and yeah. my dad did. Do you want just a quick story on Warhammer while oh. we're here? And so I, I sorry, I was, hang on, is this like Den of Geek? It feels like <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, I love him, by the way, the man <laughs> Den of Geek. Anyway, and I, I, my, my best friend at uh, infant school, uh, primary school was massively into it, right? So we mm. used to go down to Games Workshop on a Saturday morning and do the classes yeah, and yeah, shit yeah. like that, right? Now, if you can remember, right, I was, uh, my, my chosen characters were orcs. Now, orcs don't use bow and arrows, right? No. So I had, this is how sad it was in Games Workshop, right? Not sad, but like stressful for a kid. So they give you an exam to see if you can keep coming at the weekends to their club. And now all the questions were about archery and my orcs never like did archery. So I failed. At which point my dad was like, do you know what? Fuck this. Let's get a dog. <laughs> so instead of going back to Warhammer, we bought my childhood dog, uh, Molly. And yeah, that was the end of Warhammer for me. I'm trying to work out what the life lesson there is. Life lesson is. Fail at exams, good things happen? Yeah. Right, okay. Just like you know, on uh, results day when Russell Brand tweets saying, "Don't fucking worry, I didn't uh, get any GCSEs." No, but the, the story there is, my yeah. dad's like, "Don't be upset that you can't fit into this crowd. I'll make you your own crowd." I'll, I'll give you something dog. that will love you unconditionally. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I had Warhammer Quest as well, which was kind of like a crossover with Dungeons and Dragons. Shit, that yeah. sounds cool. So cool. Did you um, do forty thousand? I don't know anyone um, who did forty thousand. No, no. I, 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 my army of choice was the Dark Elves. Yeah. But yeah for some yeah. reason, I decided that my army should be purple. Okay. Yeah. So like um, princey and elves almost. Purple rain. I guess. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, not really, but, you know, we'll go with that. <laughs> um, yeah, but look, I, I just think this is really cool. Yeah. I also, what I, I really like, getting back to the article, oh. um, the most novel aspect of Labo VR offering is the game making sweet. Yeah, 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 yeah. Build your own games. That's great. Mm-hmm. But it also talks about the fact that, actually, what, what about the VR? The yes. 3D effect, similar to that provided by glasses at your local IMAX, is achieved through Nintendo's VR goggles, which slot into the self-built visor. 
Um, it's basically saying that you know groundbreaking visual fidelity is not Nintendo's aim here. There's no getting yeah. around it, right? That doesn't matter. Not if you're a kid. If you're a kid, it's about building something and interacting yeah. with it. And who cares if it's not photorealistic, lifelike? Nintendo have always been a little bit cartoon-esque. They've always gone in the other direction. And you know what? I love them for it. Yeah. Because they concentrate on gameplay and experience. And actually, they don't think about, let's make the thing that looks the slickest. They think about the thing that... They think about their audience. Look at... Um, they think about the problem they're going to solve. They yeah. think about the purpose behind it, right? Very Bringing start it back RP, to, yeah. There's something, that, and I know they're not, but there's something that I love about that. It's yeah. very genuine that they they go, sod that, we'll just build games that people will enjoy. Arguably, one of the most successful games of the last 20 years, the graphics in it are dog shit. Minecraft. Yeah. Like, honestly, every kid of the age of, sort of 16 or under has played Minecraft now. I can't play it because it offends my eyes. What championship manager back in the day? Oh, 0102. It was just... Flashing text. Yeah. You didn't even have the little little fellas running around the pitch in their circles. No. It was just commentary. But in your head. Oh, oh. I had Gabriel Batistuta back then, man, uh. for my Arsenal team. I remember being a boy and Arsenal lost the cup, European Cup Winners' Cup to Fiorentina. Batistuta played amazingly well and I was like, I've got to have him for my team. And yeah, I brought him on the Championship Manager. Christian Vieri, always a good buy on that because he had personal problems at the end of the first season so you could get him on cheap. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Or Andre Sipiotson if you buy for 20k. And Anyway, let's leave it there. Mohamed right? Zidane. Did you ever buy the Egyptian Zidane? No. It was, always, it was always just looking through the Swedish leagues for the, for the young... Anyway. On that note... Let's go. Let's leave the listeners because we have gone randomly off on tangents. Yeah, you can tell this is a Friday afternoon recording, yeah, yeah. can't you? 